Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes for the week ending August 21st, 2020. Very exciting week and this is our 44th video cast and our 34th podcast. So welcome once again and as we do each week we'll kick off with the media spots where I really condense uh, everything that's going on during the week. Uh, first, we had CGTN Global Business from Shanghai, uh, an appearance yesterday, and Michelle was asking me to comment on Alibaba's earnings. You definitely want to listen into that if you uh, have Alibaba or are interested in Alibaba. Uh, Dan Loeb reported, Dan Loeb of Third Point, legendary hedge fund manager, reported a, a position for his recent quarterly filing. Uh, the key here is the cloud business is growing three times faster than its developed market counterparts. The Allian business, uh, the cloud business, is basically looks like Amazon Web Services did five years ago. Amazon Web Services now has grown to be larger than the whole of Alibaba, including their commerce business and payments business, etc. cetera. Uh, so on that growth trajectory, Allian, they're obviously going to have the um, IPO of Ant Financial, which they own a third. So that's going to be worth $70 billion. So really granular on what businesses are really firing and and how alibaba's uh, firing on all cylinders and michelle asked the right question well it's run a lot can it still run and my answer was simple in in the long term for sure in the short term you know it, it wouldn't be out of the question to consolidate and pull back here and that creates a long-term opportunity but uh definitely check that out and i want to thank liang ru for inviting me on the show again liang thanks for having me on yesterday and the next one i want to thank uh sean langlois for uh featuring our article on market watch yesterday the article we're going to cover and uh you know he's an exceptional writer because he he knows how to write a headline much better than i do uh he said that uh, 10 stocks positioned for an abrupt which is a word that i used in the lionel richie article which we're going to go through now uh rebound in when normalcy finally returns none of them are tech now in the lionel richie article if you read it uh the stocks that i feature were just randomly picked from the subsectors they weren't stocks that i was endorsing per se but when I went through his list, uh, there were none that I disagreed with, so I just let it go. And uh, I think it's useful to look at those groups because uh, they will do well once we have the catalyst we're going to talk about uh, in, in the, the rest of this podcast, video cast. So what was also interesting is, uh, thanks to Sean, that this actually uh, has become the most popular article on MarketWatch, which is one of the most trafficked uh, financial websites in the world. So again, thanks to Sean for featuring this article. Be sure to check it out on the MarketWatch website, and uh, we're going to go through a lot of the content that's included. I'd also like to thank Ellen Chang, uh, who is a regular writer for U.S. News and World Report and for TheStreet.com. She's terrific, and she included me in her article on active investing this week. And uh, my quote there, one of the reasons why, and she interviewed a lot of managers. But what I was, the point that I was making is the key reason investors want to have some exposure to active management is as a hedge against market cap weighted indices like the S&P 500. A handful of stocks make up almost a quarter of the weighting in the S&P 500. If and when those stocks, uh, which are tech heavy, take a breather, you're going to have the benefit of a good active manager that has anticipated the sector rotation and put you in stocks set to outperform on a relative basis, says Tom Hayes. So uh, that goes along with the theme of what we're going to be covering this week. Again, thank you, Ellen Chang, for putting that in your article in U.S. News and World Report. Next was Bloomberg covered me with regard to the dollar. Now, both Ellen's article and Moxie Ying's article here at Bloomberg, uh, those quotes were from about a week or so ago, and they've just published this week. So it's not like all these were happening this week. Uh, but it was nice to be, thanks for Moxie and for Ruth Carson, including me about the dollar. And the quote they stuck in was, uh, I basically said, 
Uh, it said for uh, Thomas Hayes, the dollar's downtrend is a signal that by riskier emerging market stocks and commodities, cheap dollar funding encourages risk taking and money flows into perceived higher growth locales. Uh, he favors emerging stocks partly as companies will have an easier time servicing dollar denominated debt. So again, thanks to Ruth and Moxie. And then finally, we had um, Reuters, Chibuke Ogu, thank you for including me in your, in your article. And uh, he was asking about the market action on Monday. And I was basically just saying we, we continue to see this push-pull between uh, growth, growth tech and cyclical slash value stocks. It's a back and forth thing. The month started with a huge rally in cyclicals and value, and then it switched to tech and growth again. This was a weak week for cyclicals and for value, and it's just gonna be push-pull until we get the catalyst that we're gonna to cover today. So now on to the article of the week, the Lionel Richie dancing, dancing on the ceiling stock market and sentiment results, also covered uh, by Sean on the uh, Market Watch. So do check it out. Sean, Sean Langlois, uh, check out all of his articles there on Market Watch. So let's get down to it. And I chose Lionel Richie's song, Dancing on the Ceiling, because I think uh, we are experiencing that for a number of stocks, some of the tech stocks, and you all know the names, the Fang, and, Fang Plus and some of the Teslas, etc. that really had these monster moves and probably run a little bit ahead of themselves. It doesn't mean a catastrophic end-of-the-world crash has to happen or anything like that, but I think you could start to see rotation once uh, a catalyst kick in that would give a tailwind to those stocks that have lagged behind and a headwind for some of these stocks that have already run um, significantly. So uh, you could go through the lyrics and the song. It was fun to watch the video. I haven't uh, heard this song in a long time, but uh, it's just embodying, oh, what a feeling when we're dancing on the ceiling. And uh, I think a lot of tech investors are feeling that way right now, uh, but they might want to uh, stay alert to some of these points that we're going to cover now. So in recent weeks, we discussed filling the late February gap on the S&P 500 and then proceeding to make new highs on the S&P uh, on the S&P 500. We've now accomplished both of those objectives. And while the implication and consensus is that we're at a short term top, it's not really clear when we look under the surface. It's more of a uh, uh, Dickinsonian, and yes, that is a word. I googled it. Uh, I was um, so I found these results. Basically, um, you have a situation where you have this Dickinsonian tale of two markets when you look under the surface. So, while general indices could certainly be due for a rest in coming weeks, um under the surface that that rest could be accompanied by under the surface rallies in laggard unloved sectors in other words the conditions that would cause a pullback in the heaviest weighted names the the fang plus uh, microsoft etc would potentially be favorable to those sectors that don't look anywhere near overdone at this stage so um you have the group that are dancing on the ceiling and testing shades of euphoria and then other sectors firmly planted on the floor and ready to launch. So the question of what do you think of the market is much less interesting nowadays than a question of what do you think about banks? What do you think about commodities? What do you think about emerging markets, defense stocks, tech, etc.? and parse it out in that basis. So for those of you listening to the podcast, uh, we're covering a series of charts here, but it's basically sectors. So the first group I pointed out, it said, for example, do these banks look toppy to you? Any signs of euphoria here? So everyone's saying we're in a bubble, but when you look, I just randomly selected, uh, it was, let's say 12, large cap banks and you can see they're all off the bottom uh, from March and April but barely okay so they're just sluggish until they get catalysts to the upside 
so it just showed that they look nothing like a bubble. What about the energy sector? Is the bid for energy too frothy? Same look as financials. They're up off the lows, but they're, you know, just kind of going sideways, looking, you know, a little bit sleepy until they wake up. Then I did, uh, so that was about three times four. Yeah, that was about 12 uh, or 16 stocks in energy I showed. Then how about defense and aerospace? I showed about eight large caps here. Same type thing. They're moving up off the bottom, but not to the same extent as some of the dancing on the ceiling stocks. Then we showed casinos and airlines, a bunch of those that we just randomly picked, but they all look the same. You know, they're up slightly off the lows, uh, but, um, you know, just slowly coming up. And then we contrasted that. So those are the all the dancing on the floor uh, sectors, banks, energy, defense and aerospace, casinos, airlines, uh, and then contrasted it to the basket of semiconductor tech and internet stocks, which you could see um, if you're going to call anything bubble, you know, these things were all at new highs and just running hot. And not necessarily out of bubble. Um, you know, I don't think, and as I've said in many recent weeks, I don't think that cyclicals performance coming out of the recession, as they always do, is going to be at the uh, zero-sum expense of the high flyers. I think in the short term, it'll be a relative outperformance. Uh, but, you know, we know that the majority of the weight of the S&P comes from the... Uh, uh, those top weighted stocks but so do the earnings so there's you know a symmetry to that uh, but in the fast growth periods of the recovery when cyclicals outperform namely coming after two quarters of negative gdp which we've just had um uh they tend to gallop out and that's really the point that we've been making in recent weeks and uh what condition we need to see to see that relative outperformance for the laggards and the dancing on the floor stocks versus the dancing on the ceiling stocks is really at this stage it's going to come down to an announcement of a vaccine or a major breakthrough that points to near certainty on it on the timeline vaccine uh, treatment front and this would shift consensus from slower recovery growth slash lower rates which benefits tech uh, to the faster recovery growth uh, slightly higher rates which benefits cyclicals and the only thing really holding back record gdp growth right now considering the amount of stimulus in the system and m2 money supply growth in the last few months which we've covered in recent weeks is certainty on the timeline of when normalcy will return and this is a function of the virus, and each day that passes, we are getting closer to resolution. Now, um, I think Sean did a good job of pointing out this word, and I bold and underlined it in the Lionel Richie article. When these groups turn, it's going to be abrupt. And most people will be chasing the banks, for instance, after they're trading at a 50 to 100% premium to book value versus buying right now, when in many cases you can buy at book or, or even to a discount of book value. And most people are not going to believe the move when it starts to happen in laggard cyclical groups because there have been too many fake outs and shakeouts. So, uh, but the move will be real and they will wind up paying up after moves of 50 to 100% because the S&P weights will have grown and forced them, the closet indexers, to participate late rather than early. So you're going to basically see when you have your Wells Fargo's and your Bank of America's and your JP Morgan's trading at one and a half times, 1.75 times book, uh, you're going to have everyone on TV saying, you know, we, we've loved financials and we're, you know, getting active exposure to financials. And you'll look back on these podcasts in recent weeks and say, you know, what what uh, I remember when we were talking about when Wells Fargo was trading at a 38 percent discount to book and no one wanted to touch it with a 10 foot pole. Um and it was the same thing if you look back to our podcast video casts in mid-March and early April when we were pounding the table on home builders and getting back in the market and people were looking at us like we have three heads. You can go back and review those. And it's not about 
you know, getting everything right because the only way you learn to get things right is by getting a lot of things wrong and experience and, and living through some cycles and everything else. So uh, no one uh, gets anywhere without paying up their tuition. Uh, but hopefully analysis like that can help a lot of people shortcutting, particularly newer people listening in, uh, shortcut and professionals stay cognizant of the opportunities that are out there versus just looking at the uh, cloud within the silver lining. So uh, how do we know this is going to happen? Because, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, why? The, the economy's changed, the world has changed, everything's changed, uh, so we don't need cyclicals anymore. There are no way, you know, et cetera. Um, I would refer back to Carl Icahn, I think, put it aptly uh, a couple years ago. He was on the halftime show. He said, Scott, we can't tweet our way to prosperity. Uh, we actually have to make stuff. And, and to that, I agree. Uh, but uh, yes, things are, are changing, but you still need stuff. Uh, and and the, the, the more technology facilitates productivity growth, the more demand there will be for stuff and the more wealth that w there will be, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just a question of timing in the cycle. So when we see that fast, fast growth, these guys are going to rip. And um, the other thing that we know is that, you know, and I've harped on the, the uh, uh, government and regula bank regulators need to lift the asset cap on Wells Fargo, is there is no recovery without banks and cyclicals leading out of the gate. Uh, in the early high growth stages. Why is that? Because if you don't have credit growth, you don't have a recovery. Show me one recovery where you didn't have credit growth. And uh, effectively, if the government falls asleep at the wheel on this, we'll, we'll have the W versus the V. I'm not in that camp, uh, even though that's the consensus. I've always been a V guy, and you can just look through the past three months of podcast video cast. Leaving that aside, uh, so banks are the transmission me mechanism for the credit growth that's required to have a sustainable recovery. So what about sentiment? Um, this week, we're going to take, a, we put out the uh, summary of Bank of America's monthly global fund manager survey. Uh, we cover this each month. It's about 200 manage managers that run about 500 billion of a AUM, and they survey them, and they get the answers going to cover some of the highlights. Um, first and foremost is this month was the first month that man after a 51% move off the bottom in the S&P 500, managers now feel this is not a bear market bounce. Well, okay, thanks for the insight. And in fact, um, the beginning of a new cycle, uh, which, which, which um, you know, we've been pointing to for, for several months now. Now, as I learned at the first hedge fund that I worked at, it's now more true than ever. Opinion follows trend. It doesn't precede trend. And that's exactly what you're going to see in banks and cyclicals. Right now, you couldn't give them away in two, three months from now. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing a parade, uh, a tidal wave, rather. There was an article in Barron's, which I'm going to cover, of vaccine data coming out now. And it's when, when the, when this, switch flips it's going to be like from dark to light there's going to be no dimmer switch where you gradually fade it up and down and get into a romantic mood this thing is going to go from off to on and people are going to be uh skeptical 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 and then when a lot of these stocks double then they're going to get interested and opinions going to follow trend you're going to see it and people are going to say oh tech got too hot you know, after tech's down, you know, 20 per, whatever, you know, certain stocks will be down materially. And, um, you know, uh, the same exact thing we said about home builders, the same exact thing, and you're going to see it. So uh, opinion follows trend. The trend has been down for cyclicals. It's it's going to turn up and uh, and people will follow on board. Next, um, so the good news is sentiment is turning, though, generally. 79% expected a stronger economy. This was put out Tuesday. This is the highest since 2009, mid-2009, which was after a rally off the bottom. And uh, that was also the beginning of the last cycle. So that's good to see. Enthusiasm is still tempered at just 17% expecting the V-shaped recovery. Most are expecting the W. So that's good because it gives us a further wall of worry to climb, and I'm happy to see that. 
Also, this tempered view is buttressed by managers' expectation that the 10-year Treasury yield will be lower than 50 basis points by year-end. I will 100% take the other side of that trade. Um, but that's just in line with people's outlook of where... Uh, it's it's really recency bias. You know, it's it's what's happened recently in the recent past is likely to persist, and frequently that's not the case. I'd be more inclined if if someone put a gun to my head and said, "Will the ten year be at fifty bips or hundred fifty bips by the end of the year?" I'd take the hundred fifty bips, and that sounds crazy. There is absolutely no strategist out there that would call for anything even close to one hundred twenty five bips. Uh, I think it's more likely to be 100, 110 bips, but um, by the year end, I'm telling you, once that vaccine is looking solid, uh, you're going to see this thing change. A whole different um, sentiment and outlook is going to just take over market, market view. So, um, also... Uh, respondents see an equal weighted portfolio of equities, bonds, and gold as the most overvalued since 2018. We're going to talk a little bit about gold. Obviously, the big news that uh, and the elephant in the room that everyone wants to talk about is Buffett trimming banks and buying gold. And we're going to dig into that in just a minute. And uh, the B of A proprietary bull bear indicator was up to 3.7. They said that is far from excessively bullish 50 percent of of the respondents expect higher profits in the next year up from up 21 percentage points in the last month and the highest level since march of 2017 so you know more than a coin flip thinks profits are going up next year that means 43 percent of people think profits are going down next year with a vaccine with 25 percent money supply growth with all the stimulus in the economy that wait till you get a little velocity it's it's mind-boggling um and then cash levels are down to 4.6 percent but that's a neutral range you need to be below four percent to be kind of in a full full-on greed or above five percent to be in fear that said follow the money they started to to make the smart moves uh in our view that we the direction at which think things are moving um related to the dollar weakness so Emerging market equities rose 11 percentage points to net 26% overweight. Eurozone allocation increased 17 percentage points to a 33% overweight. That's a value play. Uh, if you're buying the Eurozone, you're making a bet on financials because they have weighting over there. Uh, so that's interesting to see. Exposure to U.S. stocks declined 5 percentage points to net 16% overweight. So coming out of the U.S., going into the emerging market in Eurozone, that's a dollar play. Uh, we'll see, you know, when sentiment gets this certain that the dollar is going to continue to go down, you usually get a little short term bounce. But I think the trend is correct. Uh, and this was the most important managers expect to rotate their investments into Europe, emerging market equities, banks, small cap and value stocks. Um, so that's the first time you're seeing an interest in emerging markets, value stocks, small caps, and banks. So it's nice to see that it started. It probably shook a few people out this week with the weakness, and that just creates the further opportunity for that when that light switch flips. Um, this kind of general outlook was, was buttressed by the Luthold Group, which you can find them on Twitter at, Twitter at Luthold. They put out basically the same type charts that we've been putting out for months, but uh, I liked them all in one place. He had the ratio chart of the NASDAQ to NICE volume 10-week moving average, and effectively you're seeing it's at beyond record all-time highs, uh, four times NASDAQ to NICE volume, uh, whereas in uh, 2000 peak you had two times. So it's really gone off the charts. That implies that you want to be lightening up on tech and moving into nice, you know, uh, New York Stock Exchange uh, stocks, more of the cyclical type stocks. The put call ratio, which everyone's been bandying about as the reason for the market to crash and for everything to go to hell, uh, is at uh, lows not seen since um, in 20 years since 2000. So they're pointing to extreme optimism, and you can't argue with that fact. 
you also did have that coming out of the last cycle in 2009 and 2010 at the beginning stages. So keep keep an eye on it. I think it relates more to what's overheated than it does to the general market because as we went through those subsectors and sectors, you know, they're not bubblicious. They're like just waiting to be picked up and and rotated into. So uh, and then finally, which we've covered extensively, the uh, but he did it as the AAII bulls as a percentage of bears is at a low. And they were pointing out that this is one of the few sentiment measures still showing a lot of caution, which which has also confounded us as well. It's, it's unusual to see uh, optimism across the board in most indicators and, or near euphoric levels and then pessimism in that one. So, um, okay. So we've covered that, and the only way to reconcile these uncommon conflicting set signals is to be selective. Trim what is run excessively and is due for a break, pockets where there is near euphoria, and buy where there's still pessimism, skepticism, reasonable valuation, and a durable long-term franchise. So then we moved on to the shorter-term view for the general market. The AAII bullish percent was only at 30%. You know usually you start to get cautious and want to trim when it's over 40 percent so you're not getting euphoria yet the bearish percentage was over 42 percent so that again is just showing mixed signals the cnn fear and greed this you know we write on wednesday night we post on thursday morning was at 68 so that's not you know 80 to 100 is where it's like okay start to what can i trim what can i trim so it it's bounced off. It came down from 74 last week. Uh, the higher likelihood is you get to froth euphoria 80 to 100 before pulling back versus pulling back from these levels. Anything is possible, but you know we just really haven't gotten euphoric yet. Uh, with the exception of the National Association of Active Investment Managers, uh, they were at 101% equity exposure this week. So, so they're, they're playing the chase game, uh, the performance chase. And uh, so that, that's something to keep an eye on. But you see, you know, we can go back. But, you know, in 2018, they did that. And that was only midway through the rally. You rallied for another four, four months. Uh, you know, similar situation in 2019. So um, the signals are, the message for the week was that the signals are mixed. We've moved a long way in a short period of time, but while some stocks are dancing on the ceiling, like Lionel Richie, there's another half of the market dancing on the floor and ready to begin their abrupt upswing. The catalyst will likely come from science at this point. Don't bet against science. So we remain very constructive in the intermediate term. We've, we are taking advantage of any buying opportunities in laggard cyclical names, and uh, for now, Keep on dancing while the music's playing, but keep your feet on the floor. And that's pointing to the stocks that uh, are at good valuations and maybe lightening up on the ones that are uh, have, have aggressive valuations at this stage. Um, so this was the full Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey. You can review it. It just basically has more charts that go through the pictures that we've covered. Um, you know, most crowded trades still tech, but that came off the boil a little bit. And the contrarian trade that they, uh, the biggest tail risk that managers were pointing to were the second wave of COVID. 35% of people were afraid of that. U.S.-China trade war, 19% of people were afraid of that. Although rhetoric lightened up a bit. Pompeo said that uh, the Chinese were following through on phase one. So that's uh, good news. Um, the... Uh, Third risk was a, a blue wave with the election because that would change corporate tax rates, although Trump has come up in the polls this week, as has the uh, Republican Senate numbers come up a little bit this week. Uh, Dems still look like they're going to have the House for sure, uh, and they could have the others too. You know, it's early. It's, it's very, very early, but uh, it seems like there was an inflection point uh, on the weekend that the executive orders to extend unemployment uh, uninsurance were given, that's when uh, the poll numbers bottomed and started to move up. Uh, and also after the Kamala appointment, I think there were people that were actually nervous that the VP was going to be Michelle Obama 
in which case uh, that would have been a very, very uh, challenging ticket to, to beat. Now now it's a, a fair game, and uh, no one really knows what's going to happen, but uh, uh, it's it's that, that's where it's trending. This week, next week, it could completely change again. You know, one sentence, one this, who knows? Um, okay, and then 13% were afraid of a credit event. Now, the contrarian trade that uh, Bank of America pointed to was, uh, you know, if you get a vaccine and rates start to move higher, long small caps and short tech. Um, and also 70% of respondents thought that if the Senate flipped Democratic, that was a risk off signal and would best be played by shorting healthcare stocks. I'm not sure that I agree with that completely, uh, but that's what they put out in the report. So the most crowded trades are now U.S. tech was at 59%, long gold was at 23%, and long corporate bonds was at 8%. Last week, we covered that uh, Drucken, Stan Druckenmiller, the legendary billionaire hedge fund manager, was buying Wells Fargo even as um, Warren Buffett trimmed last quarter, 26%. But the key thing to keep in mind, which we covered last week, is Warren Buffett was trimming everything. I mean, he, he really sold uh, Jank... JP Morgan, which was surprising, 63 some odd percent. Uh, Bank uh, Wells Fargo, he sold 26 percent. But you had guys like Druckin Miller buying. And then after we put out the podcast, we found out that uh, uh, David Tepper was buying, who uh, of Appaloosa, who's just had staggering performance over the last 20 years. Uh, when when Berkshire Hathaway is more leveled off due to the large law of large numbers, um, so it was nice to see that. The other thing is, um, I, I totally understand the gold trade, and I, I understand inflation expectations, and I understand money printing. The two things that I would bear in mind, because it was the same argument in 2009, I think this time the gold bugs will be more correct than the last time uh, in terms of us starting to see real inflation, you know, several years out. Um, but what one wants to keep in mind, you know, the S&P 500 is basically the strongest 500 companies in the world. So they benefit when Main Street struggles in the short term because they pick up share. So, um, so two, two things you want to keep in mind is you, you are going to see a lot of defaults of small businesses, consumers, Etc. And that's not reflected in the S&P 500 because there's no index of Main Street. Um, so what what Warren Buffett said in why I think that this um, he bought a bunch of Barrick Gold, OK, or Berkshire Hathaway did. And why I think that this is a Todd or Ted play versus a Warren play. I mean, I'm sure Warren gave him the nod to put that kind of money to work. Um, is because, you know, Warren Buffett came out in, well, for years he's been talking against gold, it's a non-productive asset, etc. But, and people are welcome to change their minds. I mean, he could come out on an interview with Becky Quick on Monday and say, listen, the Fed has told you that they're going to keep their foot on the gas until they have 2% symmetric inflation, which means they're going to get to 3 or 4% for a while until they start tightening and I want some exposure to a gold producer to offset that and I think that's a better exposure than you know pricing power of Coca-Cola or some of the consumer product brands uh, or some of the big companies that I own and that's that's a reasonable view and that could very well be the case for owning it in the short term but over the long term here's what he had to say about it and this will kind of put some perspective in 2018 Warren Buffett compared investing ten thousand dollars in stocks versus gold starting in 1942. He chose 1942 because that was the first year he invested in stocks. So if you'd invested $10,000 in the S&P 500, what would be an index fund, even though they didn't have it back then, but just the general stock market indices, um, that $10,000 would be worth $51 million in 2018 versus gold, which would have only been worth $400,000. So by, you know, and you had huge bouts of inflation over that uh, 60, 70, 80, you know, less than 80 year period, you know, in the 1970s off the charts, the early 80s, they had to raise rates to 
Um, some of you listening had mortgages that were 15% in the early 80s. So it's not like we didn't have inflation during that period and now we're going to really get inflation. No, we actually had a lot of inflation. We haven't seen inflation. It may be coming. But even with that said, if you're if your outlook is more than the next six months and a six month or 12 month or 18 month trade, the long term, if you're if you were betting on inflation in 1942, so one hand you put $10,000 in stocks, you made $51 million. Now keep in mind, you know, in 1948, debt to GDP was, uh, because of World War II, a different type of war. They had a visible enemy. This time we have an invisible enemy. They had to borrow to fight the visible enemy. We borrowed a ton to fight the invisible enemy. But their debt to GDP got to 120%. Um, so the case for inflation was very strong. And yet, stocks were worth $51 million by 2018, that $10,000, versus gold at $400,000. So you basically left $50.5 million on the table by using gold as your inflation hedge versus using the pricing power of stocks as your inflation hedge. Um, and it's something to keep in mind here because it's, it's, uh, that's how Warren Buffett has explained it for decades and no one's better. So when you see this short-term view, I know Ryan Dietrich put out this thing, you know, charting Warren Buffett's comments about gold, you know, at the bottom, he was saying, you know, gold is bad. And now at the top, he's buying. I, I, I wouldn't characterize it that way. I think that's that's unfair. I think this is more likely a Todd and Ted thing. I think Warren, you know, wants to hand over some of the reins. So unless it was an egregiously bad idea, he'd probably like it won't hurt us in this environment. You know, go for it. And that's exactly what they did. And it'll probably be a decent trade for sure. But over the longer term, which is what Berkshire is designed for, what's a better trade? And the, the math is you can't even compare the outcomes. Uh, so when you think about chasing that. Now, there's another reason narrative going around. Why is gold outperforming? And that's because of duration risk for long bonds. So most people would hedge volatility and risk historically with long bonds. Now they feel the asymmetry is to the downside because you get no yield and if rates go up, you're gonna lose you know, 20, 30% or more of your principal and you'll never get that back. And I, I actually understand that thesis. <clears throat> I think it's more of a reason with a long-term view to be in stocks, uh, but you know, not everyone's at the age where they wanna have an overweight stock so that it's temporarily acting as a placeholder in that role, uh, but I don't think that will be a durable strategy for the long term it may be a trade in the short term uh but i you know when i just think about the comparison over time um you know you're not going to get inflation and the top 500 strongest companies in the world are not going to increase prices it's just not going to happen because they have to pay their people more they have to pay more rent uh real estate has proven to be a better hedge over time than gold as well um but if you want to have it for peace of mind and, you know, a lot of prominent people talk about it, then you should do that. But just look at how the math bears out over time. Um, in concert with our thesis about what's going to flip the switch, Barron's put out an article this week, a tidal wave of vaccine news is hitting the market. And uh, Pfizer and Biotechni obviously was the big one. Uh, they're expected to get results by October. Then J&J has a 60,000 person trial. Moderna enrolling uh, phase, uh, I'm sorry, phase three from Pfizer and Moderna to enroll 30,000 people. J&J, a 60,000 person trial. Then you have that uh, Gates company called CureVac that IPO'd and they're in talks with the EU to sell 225 million doses. Uh, Novak. So look, as Fauci said a month or two ago, lots of shots on goal. Wait till it gets through the five hole and the switch is going to flip. The growth narrative is going to change. Cyclicals are going to rip. No one's going to believe it because they faked this out twice or three times in the last couple of months. And then, you know, they're going to be chasing after the fact. Uh, next, I thought this was pretty cool. Uh, banks uncover loophole to buy home loans at below market prices. So effectively, you've got Wells Fargo and USB setting themselves up for a huge windfall. Um, they are 
buying Ginny May government. Uh, Ginny May guarantees. So they're buying bonds from these funds that have to sell out because the the borrower is in forbearance. So the value of the bond in the short term goes down dramatically, which is forcing the funds that hold them to sell them. But banks are buying them knowing that a large percent, number one, there's the insurance and number two, a large percentage of them will become current again. And they're going to be, you know, making doubles and they're buying them in the billions and tens of billions. We'll get more color on that in, in coming weeks as they start to disclose that. But uh, it was nice to see that. So U.S. Bancorp bought five billion dollars of these loans for three hundred and eighty million dollars. And and they'll probably trade back up close to par, uh, I'm sure. Uh, Will, Wells Fargo in July and August bought $19 billion of loans out of Gini Securities for uh, $1.5 billion less than the uh, loan's market price, according to uh, Divya Krishna. They don't disclose what the market price was, which was probably that similar discount to what we just saw from U.S. Bancorp. So, you know, they could make... Five, ten, twenty billion dollars off these type of deals because they have the accounting set up that they can do this and take advantage of it. So they're profiting from dislocation, and you're not going to see it until coming quarters. And it's probably going to be in line when we get the uh, vaccine news, and everyone's going to say, "Well, that was obvious. They were trading at a 38% discount for book." Except no one is on the same page with this. Uh, so, uh, you know, just stay tuned is all I, all I have to say. Um, now, it's quite feasible that banks don't recover, in which case then you have to say the BAML fund man uh, Bank of America fund manager survey is correct, and we do not get a recovery. Uh, and that would be a scenario where banks don't recover because uh, banks always recover dramatically in the early stages of recovery. But if you don't have a recovery, like if you're in the you know end of world, you know, buy gold, buy bunker camp, then, you know, it's the wrong trade. But uh, I'm, I have a different view, and so far it's been correct. Uh, you know, when many, many people were pessimistic in March and April, you can go back and review our video cast, podcasts, and uh, media appearances, and I think that's going to persist. I understand spike ups. I understand no one can predict the trajectory of uh, what we can't control, which is the virus, but we can probabilistically bet that there are enough shots on goal that one of them is going to get through the five hole. We're going to have a vaccine and uh, everything's going to change. Now I flew this week. I, I thought it was the easiest, safest thing I've ever done. Um, I'll have to quarantine when I get back to Connecticut, but for, for two weeks, uh, according to the rules, but everyone was wearing masks. Um, it was totally safe. The airport, like you punched in your, like you'd go to the food court, you they give you like this stylus you punch it in on an ipad you don't even touch the ipad and then it's delivered to you it's like touchless payment and you don't interact with humans so it's it's space there were no checkout people it was just ipads so they've adapted and this thing you know you see it in the tsa pass-throughs or now whatever they hit eight hundred eighty thousand. i thought you know maybe they'd be back up to half at one million or so if you remember from a couple of months ago we got close but we didn't quite get there so I think more and more people are going to travel as there are more stories like mine and hundreds of thousands of others who are already traveling. Um, but yeah, I would travel again next week and the week after. I mean, everyone's wearing masks, totally safe. Airplane, we know about the filtration systems are safe. Uh, there was no middle aisle, middle seat empty situation in my plane. It was full. It was great. The kids wore masks. We wore masks. No problems. So... That's even before a vaccine. Wait till we have a vaccine. So that's good news to see. Um, and by the way, you're like, well, how did you get all this work done? I mean, look, look, I work a couple hours in the morning, went to the beach a few hours, came back, worked a couple hours at the beach. We had an amazing time. Uh, so uh, now here's another article, as I say, that, you know, when people say the world has changed. Okay, the website is Investor Amnesia. It was posted on the big picture, Riholtz's uh, blog. And this guy characterizes, this guy, Jamie Catherwood is the name of the author. 
he has this chart, and I've talked about this in the past, how we had electric buses in the 30s, but his, his article is much better. He chronicles this company called the Electric Vehicle Company stock price from 1899 to 1907. Uh, and you can see it fell from 190, uh, I'm sorry, $120 down to eventually down to $1 in the year and a half, and then it eventually went into receivership. It's not commentary on what's going to happen today, but um, because, you know, I, 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 we don't know, but you know, there were a ton of electric cars on the road in the early 20th century. And his article actually goes through all the data. So the electric vehicle company was founded in 1897. Um, and basically it went into receivership in 1907. During that period, the company issued 10 million of common stock, 8 million of preferred, um, and which is a huge amount of money 120 years ago, probably in line with what a lot of these SPACs are doing today, etc. And then it talks about, um, oh, their range, by the way, the range of these electric vehicles was 180 miles. So they had close to the same technology 120 years ago. The electric car was invented almost 200 years ago. I mean, that I can't even imagine. In 1832, was built 50 years before the first internal combustion engine, uh let's see and this was in my sunday reads last week so if you um either go to investoramnesia.com or go to the sunday reads and there's a hyperlink to it in during the 1890s electric vehicles outnumbered other vehicles 10 to 1 and by 1912 there were 38,842 electric vehicles on the road they had an early mileage range of 100 mile, 180 miles off a single charge. Um, sounds familiar. So let's see here. So you definitely want to check this out. Oh, and by the way, they had the whole thesis. They had um, trucks running off of electric to, to do that. They had buses running off of electric. Um, all the things that people are saying, well, what if this happened, etc., um, already happens. So maybe this is the time that it actually sticks, or maybe it's just a repeat of what we've already seen historically. Only time will tell. Now, while vast consensus is uh, running away from cyclicals, uh, there are, is some smart money getting into cyclicals. We saw a lot of unusual options activity one, in, uh, one to one and a half years out, for banks and energy and we saw a lot of uh insider buying was concentrated in in the same two sectors this week so here's a u.s bank corp there was a big buy jp morgan chase a, a, a big buy um aig a big buy uh, raytheon defense and aerospace a big buy and then insider buying in allegiant travel that's an uh airline insider buying in Texas Capital Bank shares, which is tied to both banks and energy. People have fled that stock because of energy exposure. The insiders are buying while everyone else is selling to them. And then um, Richard Kinder, who's been buying his stock hand over fist, uh, bought another 373,000 shares this week, uh, yesterday for $5.2 million. So while everyone's puking out, the smart people that are in the businesses are buying it from those people. And that'll continue to persist until, uh, you know, until they rip. And, you know, in the case of banks, they're trading at two, two and a half times book. In the case of energy stocks, you know, two years down the road trading, you know, wherever they'll be trading, like we saw from 2003 to 2007, when you had some inflation, when you had emerging market growth. Um, and that's when the insiders will be selling it back to all the institutions who finally want them. Um, okay. Now, let's wrap up with economic data. Uh, was, again, off the charts this week. Uh, for the most part, housing, uh, NAHB housing on Monday, confidence was at 78 versus 73 expectations off the chart. Um, you also saw New York Empire State Manufacturing Index was down. Um, that could be a one-off. Um, it is New York as well, so... Uh, just keep an eye on that. Uh, building permits were up 1.495 million from 1.3 expected, 1.25 last month. That was huge. Housing starts crushed expectations. 1.49 expected, 1.24 up from 1.22. Uh, 
Um, the uh, uh, energy had a big draw again this week, but it was less than expected. We only drew 1.6 million barrels versus 2.6 million expected. Uh, that's probably part to, due in part to some of the regional shutdowns of the past uh, few weeks, but um, now the Sun Belt's coming back online. Hopefully that'll go in the right direction moving forward. Continuing claims is the most important employment number. That beat expectations. So that came down to 14.8 million from uh, 15.4 million. Expectations were 15 million. Initial jobless claims spiked up. Again, that's probably attributable to the Sun Belt, etc. They were supposed to be 925. They came in at 1.1. So that was a negative. But continuing is the more important number. But we got to keep our eye on initial. Um, the Philly manufacturing was down. Was less than expectations, like New York. And the U.S. leading index was up. Uh, U.S. manufacturing PMI. These were some good ones today. Beat by a big margin. In expansion mode uh, was 53.6. So that's for the whole country. So that was good to see relative to 50.9 last uh, read. Um, the services PMI also crushed it. Expectations were 51. They came in at 54.8. Again, Expansion over 50 versus 50 last read. Existing home sales crushed it, 5.86 million versus 5.38. Existing home sales uh, up 24.7% versus expectations of up 24.6. And interestingly enough, rig count actually creeped up for the first time in ages um, to 183 from 172. And total rigs, that's oil, total was 254 from 244. So that's interesting to see some investment starting to kick in there. And lastly is earnings for the week. Uh, again, just really off the charts. Uh, you had your Chinese companies like JD and Baba do great. You had uh, a lot of the retailers do well. I just want to pull America's Car Mart. There's such a demand for cars these days. Uh, they crushed it. Uh, it's kind of like Carvana. Uh, Walmart, I think their online sales were up 97% or some crazy number, but they beat. Home Depot beat. Lowe's beat. Um, NVIDIA beat. Uh, Advanced Auto Parts beat. Uh, just cover some of the highlights here. Yeah, we covered Lowe's. Target had a killer quarter. Um, so just across the board, we continue to see good numbers. Baba, we covered. Uh, and Deer crushed it, which was nice to see a cyclical knock the cover off the ball this morning, which was really, really great to see on Deer. So that's the story for this week. We're going to keep it uh, short and sweet. I want to thank you for listening in. We're going to be back next week, same time, same place. Until then, thanks for listening and make it a great one.